Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Christina Darnell in for Natasha Cowden, also coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. On today's program, a former executive at the American Family Association is suing for alleged sexual harassment. We'll have some details. Also, an annual conference founded by the hymn-writing duo Keith and Kristen Getty pushes back on the spread of megachurch music. We'll take a look. And tips for Christians wanting to give to disaster relief ministries providing aid in Morocco following a devastating earthquake there this week. We include a list of ministries with high ratings in the Ministry Watch database. We begin today with news that 36 churches from Western North Carolina have agreed to leave the United Methodist Church under the denomination's approved plan. This after a judge had dismissed their lawsuit back in March. This particular group of churches had originally sued, demanding to sever ties with the United Methodist Church. But after a judge dismissed their lawsuit, the churches and the conference continued talking and reached a resolution late last month. The group, which includes some of the biggest churches in the conference, will formally exit the UMC using the denomination's exit plan at a special session of the conference that's scheduled to take place for November 4th. That plan allows churches to take their properties with them, but requires them to meet some financial obligations before doing so. The United Methodists across the country are mired in a messy divorce over theological differences, mostly regarding biblical sexuality and LGBTQ issues. The North Carolina churches were represented by the National Center for Life and Liberty, a legal ministry that is representing thousands of the United Methodist churches that are trying to leave in multiple states. In May, the center won a lawsuit on behalf of about 185 churches in Georgia who challenged a decision by the North Georgia Conference to pause the disaffiliation process. In the North Carolina case, the center lead counsel, David Gibbs III, had argued that some churches needed to sue because the disaffiliation plan approved by the denomination was too onerous and amounted to ransom. Still, suing to leave the denomination has not been the standard practice. No, it hasn't. Most churches wanting to break away from the UMC have followed the approved plan, but that plan does expire on December 31st of this year. Now, since 2019, 233 churches have left the Western North Carolina Conference of the UMC, a region that spans the western part of North Carolina, includes about 757 churches in total. A conference spokesperson said another 100 churches, including the 36 that had unsuccessfully sued, may leave in November. So where does that put the tally now? Well, to date, uh, 6,240, 6,240 U.S. churches have departed the United Methodist Church. Uh, That's not a small number, of course, uh, considering that the second largest Protestant denomination has some 30,000 churches, though. It only represents about 20% of the congregations. 
Now, some of the departing churches will likely join the more conservative global Methodist church, which was formed last year. That's right. As of July, the global Methodist church counted about 3,100 congregations and 3,400 clergy. Well, let's move on to our next story. A former vice president of the American Family Association has sued the ministry, accusing leaders of firing him after he reported alleged sexual harassment and financial irregularities. Robert Chambers was the former vice president of policy and legislative affairs at the American Family Association. He was there from 2015 to 2022 in that role. The AFA is a pro-family ministry that considers itself on the front lines of the culture war. It also owns more than 200 radio stations around the country. Chambers filed his complaint last week, alleging that another staffer named Ron Cook made repeated sexual advances towards him beginning in January of 2022. The complaint details those advances, but Chambers claims he was fired for reporting the harassment and that AFA leaders violated federal law by retaliating against him as a whistleblower. The AFA is denying those claims, calling Chambers a disgruntled former employee whose claims are an unfounded, gross mischaracterization of the facts. We will use every tool at our disposal to prevail in this matter, they said. Chambers said he reported the harassment to AFA's leadership, which included Walker Wildman, who is the son of AFA President Tim Wildman. The complaint alleges that Walker Wildman told Chambers he was not the first employee of the AFA to have complained against Cook's sexual misconduct. The complaint says that Chambers repeatedly followed up on his allegations of harassment and a hostile work environment, but leaders took no action for eight months. Now, Chambers also raised concerns about the finances. He did. Chambers uh, served on the board of AFA Action, which is AFA's lobbying arm, and he said he raised concerns multiple times about the ministry's finances, including failing to file financial disclosures in a timely manner, and actually the IRS revoked AFA Action's tax exemption because of those failures. That exemption was since restored, and AFA is now classified as a church, meaning it doesn't have to file a Form 990. Chambers was later fired in fall of 2022 after a leadership meeting in which he says he raised the issue of sexual harassment and what he considered to be defamatory comments made by the daughter of Tim Wildman, which, again, he is the AFA president. Um, In the complaint, Chambers said that Wildman's daughter claims she had a dream in which Chambers kissed her baby on the lips and that she was no longer comfortable bringing her children to the office because she was afraid that Chambers would harm them. Six hours after that meeting, according to the complaint, Chambers was fired in a call for lack of respect for leadership. AFA did offer Chambers a severance if he signed an agreement promising a continual duty of loyalty to AFA and banning him from making any negative comments about the organization. But Chambers declined to sign that severance agreement. He alleges that he has not been able to find work in his field since his termination. Warren, let's look at one more story before the break. 
A woman who volunteered at a church food pantry in the Chicago area was murdered over Labor Day weekend by a man that she had helped. The woman murdered was Marisol Berrios. She was 53 years of age. She had helped Marvin Wells, even giving him cash gifts. And he admitted to killing and robbing her after police found him with her purse inside a stolen car. Friends of Marisol Berrios have described Wells as an addict. He learned, supposedly, that Marisol had been helping her landlord of the apartment complex where she lived by receiving rent money from renters. Wells allegedly broke into her apartment, beat and killed her, and then grabbed her purse and car keys and drove off. Police found him parked nearby, asleep at the wheel. Warren, let's take a break. When we return, something a little more upbeat, we'll take a look at Sing Global, which is the annual conference founded by Keith and Kristen Getty that brings Christians who share a common love and culture of sacred music to sing together. I'm Christina Darnell, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and we'll have that story and much more after this short break. Hey, everybody, Warren Smith interrupting the podcast for just a brief uh, moment to let you know that we're going to be doing a, a webinar on September 20th, which is next Thursday four o'clock Eastern time. And that webinar is going to be how to find and read a form 990. Uh, we've done this webinar before and it's proven to be really popular. If you've never been to this webinar, I hope you'll uh, take a minute to, or take an hour uh, to be with me for that webinar. If you've already attended the webinar, Tell somebody else about it, because we think this is a really important topic for Christian donors. They need to know how to read a Form 990. We talk about the Form 990 all the time here on Ministry Watch. Uh, we just think it's a really important uh, document and an important tool for donors, and uh, that's why we keep doing this webinar. And it continues to be popular. We usually have good attendance. So watch your inbox. I'll be sending you an email. You do have to sign up for it, so we will know how many people are coming. But uh, it is free, absolutely free, and I hope to see you on September 20th, 4 o'clock Eastern Time, for how to find and read a Form 990. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back. I'm Christina Darnell, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Last week, Keith and Kristen Getty held their annual SING conference in Nashville, Tennessee. It attracted more than 8,000 worship leaders from around the country. And not just from around the U.S., the annual SING Global Conference, which was held September 4th through 6th, uh, drew people from as many as 35 countries. An estimated 80,000 others in about 120 countries participated online. The SING Conference has become something of an antidote to the big power ballads that you often hear on Christian radio. It attracts songwriters, worship leaders, and pastors who sing, of course, but also who attend breakouts sessions on congregational singing, songwriting, and children's and family ministry as well. American worship services have started to leave traditional hymns behind, but the Gettys seem to be bringing them back. 
Yeah, one recent study that we reported on here at Ministry Watch found that of the 38 most played songs in churches, 22 were released by one of the four most prominent megachurches in the country. An additional eight songs were released by artists with ties to those churches, and six more were collaborations with megachurch artists or cover songs. But those who gathered in Nashville are in part a bulwark against this takeover by megachurch music. Warren, there was another big conference taking place this week. Yeah, uh, pastors attended the SING conference to learn about worship, preaching, leadership, discipleship, and evangelism. But the latest pastors summit hosted by Turning Point USA this week featured activism of a different kind, speaking on small speakers talked about small government, capitalism, vaccine skepticism, election fraud, drag queens, transgender teens, and woke Christians. Turning Point USA is a secular nonprofit that's become popular with conservative Christian groups for its massive, flashy events that attract thousands of young people. It calls itself the premier brand in events for young conservative activists across the country. The organization itself has annual revenue of about $80 million and more than 700 employees. Uh, this past week at the Pastor Summit, about 1,200 people were in attendance, and they represent, according to the organizers of the event, 4 million souls who attend the churches that those pastors lead. The Pastor Summit, by the way, took place in San Diego, California. My Pillow founder and 2020 election denier Mike Lindell is an honorary Turning Point USA board member and what is called an activist partner. Former President Trump, his family members, and associates are also frequent speakers at Turning Point events, though they were not at this particular event. Warren, who are the speakers at this year's event? Well, Rob McCoy uh, is the co-founder of Turning Point Faith. Uh, he became a conservative media sensation while also growing his church, Godspeak Calvary Church in Thousand Oaks, California, by opposing COVID mandates on vaccine, masks, and audience restrictions. He has publicly prayed with Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, that, that she would be president of the United States and creates videos that train congregations across the nation to turn churches into centers for political activism. Other speakers include Eric Metaxas and worship artist Sean Fecht, who became famous through his 120-city Let Us Worship tour, which he called a worship protest event against COVID restrictions and racial unrest. The event, some of which lacked proper public permission, featured security teams populated by members of the Proud Boys and other far-right extremist groups, whose members, some of whose members have been convicted for participating in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Warren, let's pivot in our conversation and talk about Christian colleges and universities. Ministry Watch has been covering Christian colleges pretty closely for the past few years, and now we have a new resource that will provide close to real-time information specifically about Christian college closings. That's right. Colleges and universities have faced unusual turmoil and challenges in recent years, but finding information about schools that are making hard decisions can be difficult. And that's why we welcome Higher Ed Dive, which is an industry publication that has 
been providing solid data and detailed reporting. We've posted on the Ministry Watch website a college tracker that was created by Higher Ed Dive. Uh, it provides information about college closings, mergers, accreditations, or deaccreditations. That link is updated uh, in as close to real time as Higher Ed Dive can update it. And if you're interested in this sort of thing, and I know a lot of our readers are, we hope that you will use this story as a kind of dashboard to keep you up to date. We also have a story about a small Christian college that for the first time in a while, um, is a positive story. Yeah, this time last year, Great Lakes Christian College looked like it was going to be another one of the casualties that we've been talking about. The Higher Learning Commission in November of last year placed uh, Great Lakes Christian College on a two-year probation, primarily for financial reasons. The Higher Learning Commission said that the college, which is located in Lansing, Michigan, lacked adequate financial resources and didn't have a comprehensive strategic plan to deal with its financial issues. That put GLCC out of compliance with the accreditor's requirements. But that also motivated the college to spring into action. That's right. It's been busy cutting expenses and raising funds as it tries to remedy issues that caused it to be sanctioned by the accrediting agency in the first place. And since then, the college has been working uh, to trim its budget and fortify its finances in all kinds of ways. Uh, the president of the school is Frank Weller. He took charge of the college just five months before it was placed on probation. And he said this, we just just hit the road really hard. Weller said that the college has been able to cut about $4.2 million from its budget for the last fiscal year that ended in June to net the college about a $200,000 surplus. The college originally anticipated nearly a $600,000 shortfall. GLCC has also bolstered its enrollment. Um, it, it expects its student headcount to grow by about 8 to 10 percent which will end up at about nearly 200 students later this fall. Um, the college has also raised more than $800,000 in donations. Yeah, all of these are good signs, but I should say that the college is far from being out of the woods. What I'm learning from experts is that it will be very difficult for a small college to survive with less than a thousand students. Uh, you just don't achieve the economies of scale at a smaller number. And Great Lakes Christian College is still a long way from that number, but they have turned a corner and seem to be moving in the right direction. And of course, we wish them well. Warren, we're going to take another break. When we return, our lightning round of ministry news of the week. I'm Christina Darnell with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everybody. Warren Smith here interrupting the podcast one more time to let you know that uh, it's now September, of course, and uh, in new month means that we have a new donor premium. Uh, we're offering Restoring All Things, God's audacious plan for changing the world through everyday people. It's a book that I wrote in 2015 with John Stone Street. John, of course, uh, many of you know, is the president of the Colson Center. He's an 
old friend and a great colleague. And, you know, John and I are both really um, pleased with this book. I can tell you that um, John and, and the Colson Center use it as part of their Colson Fellows Program. And um, I, I just think that if you care about Christian ministries and you care about the life of the church in this country, that you'll want to read this book. This book talks about ministries that are doing great work uh, in this country. There are ministries that uh, I think that we can at least pray for, if not financially support. And honestly, too, it's a little bit of a palate cleanser um, for some of the bad news that we report on here at Ministry Watch. Now, I do want to be clear that I think all news that is true is good news because it does make us aware of what's going on in the world and what to do about it. Uh, But this is unabashed good news that you will read in Restoring All Things. So a gift of any size to Ministry Watch during the month of September, and you'll get a free copy of Restoring All Things as our thank you. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the donate button at the top of the page. Now let's get back to the podcast. Welcome back. I'm Christina Darnell with my co-host Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Warren, we like to use this last segment as a sort of lightning round of shorter news briefs. So what do we have first? A nonprofit advocacy organization is not waiting for a bill that is being considered by the California legislature to become law. The Consumer Data Industry Association, or CDIA, is uh, based in Washington, D.C., and they've launched a public awareness campaign designed to alert consumers about the negative impact of being able to easily remove their information from the files of data brokers. And that effort is in response to California Senate Bill SB 362. SB 362, if it is passed, would require data brokers to register with the state and consumers would also have an easy way of removing their information from data repositories. Warren, that sounds like a good thing. It would allow consumers to get off of lists that generate huge amounts of junk mail. Well, it might, uh, assuming, of course, that uh, data uh, users don't find another way to get to them. But it would also have, at least according to the CDIA, massive unintended consequences. Uh, That's according to Dan Smith, who is the president of CDIA, and he's fighting the bill on behalf of California nonprofits. He said this, it would undermine consumer fraud protections, curb small businesses' ability to compete, hurt mission-driven nonprofits, and empower third-party pay-to-delete services that would come at consumers' expenses. The CDIA's messaging is very clear uh, that it will have these impacts not only on small businesses, but also women and minority-owned businesses, and uh, it would just have so many unintended consequences that they're hoping it doesn't happen in California. Plus, it would create a two-tier system. People would have to comply with the law in California, but wouldn't have to comply with the law elsewhere in the country. So do you think the bill is going to pass? 
The bill passed the state Senate in late August and is now being reviewed by the state's assembly. As of September the 7th, it had been amended twice in the assembly and was ordered to a third reading. But support for the bill seems to be pretty strong. It's along party lines with Republicans opposed and Democrats in favor of the bill. But the full 80-person assembly is overwhelmingly controlled by Democrats. They have a 62 to 18 majority there. This week, we also have some guidance for those wanting to help with relief efforts in Morocco. A massive earthquake struck Morocco Friday night, uh, September 8th. I'm sure many of our listeners already know that. Uh, it's so far, um, we know that it's killed 2,800 people and destroyed many old buildings and mud brick homes. Over the next few days, after the uh, after the earthquakes, donate buttons were blossoming like flowers on websites uh, all around the internet. And our reporter, Steve Ravy, uh, both summarized the situation on the ground there and uh, took a look at some of the organizations that were asking for funds uh, to see which ones that maybe we could trust or not trust in this overwhelmingly Muslim country. So which of the ministries did stand out? Because there are so few Christian ministries operating there, uh, we suggest giving to those that have a good reputation for using money wisely, and that means that you shouldn't give to ministries that you don't already know. Uh, Don't just be victimized by responding to the first email that comes in through your inbox. Uh, Among the organizations that we are recommending are World Help and the Barnabas Aid, Samaritan's Purse, World Vision, and Compassion International. The big three when it comes to Christian relief are also sending aid to Morocco. I I should mention, though, that when you send money, specify that it must go to Morocco, or it could end up just going into the general fund of the ministry. Who is in our ministry spotlight this week? Kids for the Kingdom is who we're spotlighting this week. They began in 1998 uh, to uh, provide help and to train people around the world to improve the physical and spiritual lives of disadvantaged children and their families uh, within those local communities. The ministry has made significant commitments and has done ministry work in China, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Germany, Ghana, Guatemala, India, Kenya, Malawi, Nepal, Nicaragua, Russia, South Sudan, Sri Lanka, and Zambia, a long list. Uh, Some practical help that they provide include food, they build wells to Uh, supply clean water, medicine, medical services, clothing, blanket, and they also are engaged in vocational training, micro-enterprise loans, and because they're a Christian ministry, they're engaged in spreading the gospel as well. Well, how do they do when it comes to their ratings on the Ministry Watch database? The donor confidence score is 92, which is pretty good. It means give with confidence. It's one of our top scores. They don't have as great a rating in some of the other areas, but all considered, that which is what our donor confidence score does take into account. It's sort of an amalgamation of all of our scores. It gets a pretty good score. We also featured a number of organizations doing good work in our Ministries Making a Difference column. 
We do, and of course, Christina, you know that's your column, so it's always a bit of a surprise even to me uh, to see who you will feature each week. A pleasant surprise, I should add, and an ongoing education for me about what God is doing through his people. And of course, that's why we do this column, because we think it would be an on- it's an ongoing education, not just for me, but for everyone who reads that column. So I strongly encourage people to do so. We're not going to hit the entire column this week, but I uh, did uh, want to f- highlight a couple of the organizations, Christina, that you highlighted in your column. One is Horizons International. They've been hosting art classes for believers in Lebanon, including painting and drawing classes. Beginner students in visual art classes featured their art at an exhibit called His Touch, along with 10 other Christian artists. Horizons also offers classes in music and provides instruments uh, to the musicians. Horizon International has four stars out of five in terms of uh, in terms of financial efficiency, which is a pretty good score, and an A transparency grade in the Ministry Watch database. Also want to mention World Mission, which is working to get food and water to the people in Niger who are facing an increasing uh, risk of food insecurity as sanctioned and closed borders make it difficult to provide aid into that region. World Mission provides solar-powered audio Bibles in areas that are in need of the gospel as well. World Mission has two out of five stars in financial efficiency, which is not one of our top ratings, but it does have an A transparency grade and a donor confidence score of 92, which is pretty good. Give with confidence. But there are more in your column, Christina. So I would, again, strongly recommend that everyone check out Christina's Ministries Making a Difference column. We post that most Mondays on the Ministry Watch website. Warren, any final thoughts before we go? Well, just a couple. Uh, We have a new gift for donors who give to us during the month of September. We'll be sending a copy of my book, Restoring All Things, if you make a gift of any size this month. I wrote this book with my good friend and former Colson Center colleague, John Stone Street. And I think you'll find the book a blessing. It highlights how God is using ministries and individuals to make a positive difference in the world. Just go to the Ministry Watch website and hit the donate button at the top of the page. One other thing I want to mention that we'll be doing another webinar on September 20th, which is next Thursday, how to find and read a form 990. The webinar is absolutely free, but you do need to sign up. Watch your inbox for a sign-up link. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Jeff McIntosh. We get database and other technical support from Stephen Dubarry, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Yonat Shimron, Bob Smitana, Steve Raby, Chris Moon, and Rod Pitzer. A special thanks to the Christian Standard and the Nonprofit Times for contributing material for this week's podcast. I'm Christina Darnell in for Natasha Cowden in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Warren Smith, also in Charlotte, North Carolina. You've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.